Hi, and welcome to She Said, She Said. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. If you are joining us for the first time, She Said, She Said is a conversation with, about, and for women where I talk to a very diverse and broad range of women from all different sectors and career fields and perspectives. They share their knowledge, their expertise, what they've learned, how they've recovered from failure, and so much more in an effort to really pay it forward. Whatever your goals or aspirations may be, we're not all the same. We don't all have the same goals, nor should we. These women recognize that, and they're sharing what they've learned in a manner that hopefully will help you as well. Today's guest is no exception. She is Marissa Porgus. Marissa is the head of the Baldwin School, which is a school for girls. It's a 130-year-old school just outside of Philadelphia. She has a very interesting career um, that has culminated with this head, headmaster role that she currently holds. But she actually was a naval fighter pilot, one of only eight women out of a battalion of 200. She worked in the White House, largely on counterterrorism policy. She traveled extensively in the Middle East, interviewing tribal leaders and Taliban members, among others. She has a fascinating, fascinating story. And her story really resonates with me because it embodies this notion of a tri-sector athlete. A number of years ago, the former dean of the Harvard Kennedy School, Joseph Nye, actually coined this term called tri-sector athlete. And it, it's used to describe people who have worked in different sectors and they bring those experiences and perspectives to bear on problem solving. And it really is a new way of thinking about how we solve some of the world's biggest problems. Well, Marissa embodies this notion and she also talks about this and describes these skill sets in this fabulous new book that she's written. The book is out today, Tuesday, August the 4th. It's entitled, What Girls Need to Know, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, Resilient Women. And I'll tell you something, as the mother of both a son and a daughter, while clearly these lessons apply largely to women, she's written the book with the focus of girls in mind, but they apply for boys too, and really everybody. So there's great advice and perspective in her book. I urge you to add it to your summer reading list. But first, I hope you'll stick around for my conversation with Marissa. Marissa, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you for having me, and it's wonderful to be here. Well, I'm so happy to have you, and I'm so excited to talk about this amazing book. We have a lot of topics that we can dig into today, but why don't we start with the book? As I said in the intro, it actually hits newsstands and Amazon today, Tuesday, August 4th. Why this book? And where did the original inspiration for this book come from? On one hand, it's a personal passion project. And like I think um, your work has proven to be as well. Uh, this idea of how we further empower women at all stages of life and really use our own stories of both success and failure to figure out what we can all do to play it to our strengths and to really position the next generation of young women to succeed. So that's the, the big picture and that's sort of what had already always been in the back of my mind. But I have to say the inspiration for the book in particular and the chapters and the stories that I include in there um, came from the girls at my school. Uh, as uh, Laura, you mentioned during the introduction, I now lead an all-girls school. And throughout the day, I, I see the girls in action from pre-K through 12 
thinking about themselves in relation to each other in the real world, but then in particular as they grow older, starting to struggle with themselves and their relation to the wider community and what the world looks like and what it will be, not just in college, but when they get out in the real world in their minds, right? When they're old, like us now, unfortunately, I guess, right? <laughs> um, and the ideas for this book came in particular from a leadership seminar that I was teaching to Baldwin seniors. Mm -hmm. And the conversations really started turning to their idea for what it's going to be like when they, you know, get out there and want to lead and do things. And what does that mean? And I started telling more and more stories from my own experience in the Navy and in the White House, working overseas, and then pulling in research that I know that both of us have seen play out over the years in person too, about how women can play to their strengths and really build their natural abilities to be competitive advantages. Mm -hmm. uh, and so all of a sudden it came together. And then before you know it, uh, you know, here we are, it's, and it's really fun to see come together. And of course, I think now more than ever with where the world is, is spinning around us, I feel like a lot of the lessons in the book are um, really critical, not just for the next generation of young women, but for all of us who yeah. are working in new ways. So you uh, alluded to your personal story, and I talked just very briefly about it in the intro, but it's a fascinating, I mean, you have a fascinating background um, given where you are now. This is fairly unusual for the head of a girls' school to have served not only in the Navy, but as a fighter pilot in the Navy, to have worked in the White House, to have worked on counterterrorism, to have interviewed um, tribal leaders and Taliban members in the Middle East. I mean, talk about how this, your experiences inform your leadership and how you think about both the content of the book and what you're presenting as it relates to helping girls at the Baldwin School. Yeah, I had the good fortune of, of you know, following some of my childhood dreams, flying off an aircraft carrier, serving in the White House, doing traveling the world for, for work and research, and meeting really amazing, interesting people, people who challenged my thinking along the way as well. Okay, um, now, now, can we just yeah. stop for just a second? Your childhood dream was to be a fighter pilot? It was, yes. I was, so it's here's not the typical. Different. No, I, I was that <laughs> awesome, kid. When but not I was that kid. But it's a really interesting story because when I was a kid, I wanted to I wanted to fly off aircraft carriers. I, I'll actually attribute it to for those of us at the certain generation who saw Top Gun when they were a child, and that was at least a little bit of how they you know thought would be an exciting uh, career later. Um, but I had the good fortune of going to the school I now lead. I went to Baldwin. I went to an all girls school um, for middle school and high school. And when I was there. Even though at the time, and I didn't even realize this, women weren't allowed to fly jets in combat. It was before the regulations had changed in the military on that front. And I didn't even realize that, but my teachers and the community around me was like, of course, Marissa one day is going to fly for the front aircraft carrier, even though you can't tell on Zoom, but there's actually height restrictions that I barely meet and all these other sort of hurdles I had to overcome, not least of which, of course, is still now there's only a handful of women who fly. When I was um, on my aircraft carrier, there was uh, seven, eight of us who flew out of an air wing of approximately 200, um, mm -hmm. and that, you know, women fly, aviators, that is. And... Um, and so all these hurdles were never part of my narrative, right? It was never something that was going to be a roadblock. And I think that's part of what we need to make sure young women today, you know, realize and think about whether it's they want to pursue a field in engineering or computer science or business or whatever other industry. Interestingly, even school administrators are by and large men. Um, you know, you think of it as a profession that is, has so many women in it, but at senior levels, um, the majority of heads of school are men still. And so 
wherever we look, I think we really need to think about how we position our young women, but that's how my story got started. And so I was sent out with this idea of, uh, sure, go pursue your adventure. And I was taught lessons when I was young that helped on that. There was also things that I missed. And so part of this book is hopefully teaching our girls to really lean into those strengths and, and figure out whether it's how they think about empathetic communicating or adaptability or problem solving. Um, but yeah, my, my own story has, you know, ventured into the, the, the funny stories that you don't tell your mom when you come home until later. Um, so there is that. Uh, but it's been, you know, again, those moments of flying off the end of an aircraft carrier I'm, I'm, uh, very much inform my life now, not just because of the adventure aspect, because of, but because of how it informs my risk taking and how it informs my leadership. And what I really think um, is about, you know, service leadership in terms of how we serve our communities, things like that. Yeah. One of the interesting things, many, many interesting things that I found um, about your story and the way that you were able to weave it together with this content in the book, um, you talk about the fact that you suffered from air sickness as a pilot, which I find remarkable. Talk a little bit about that, because that was sort of a pivoting moment for you as well. Yeah, it's, it's a story. This is actually the first time I really um, publicly told the story in some way. It's a story that for a long time represented one of those moments of, of personal and professional failure and something that I, it took a while to grapple with this idea that when I was a kid, this was going to be my dream. I committed myself to this career, to serving the military in this way, to serving my country in this way. And then once I got out there and was, um, was flying, I was actually a, a navigator. So I was, if again, back to the Top Gun reference, I was goose to maverick. I was the backseat of the jet, but it did mean that you're sort of in the ejection seat flying uh, combat maneuvers and all the rest. Um, and I realized that uh, physiologically, I wasn't well suited to the job. And I um, struggled throughout time, my time in training and on deployment with serious air sickness to the point where it, it unfortunately, um, you know, I, it, it became a moment that, uh, and you'll, you'll read, you read about it, I tell the story of right. this reckoning where I, you know, fortunately had a, a mentor who said to me, there's other things you can do to serve, but it was the first time that I'd faced this I, realization um, that I had to try something else. Um, which it's, it sounds funny to say in that way now. Um, and, but it was, uh, and you know, some people would say, Oh, you know, of course, just do something else. But at the time it was what I considered a, a significant failure. And I think our girls in particular need to understand how to be resilient in those moments and how to adapt their thinking about themselves personally and professionally. Perfectionism is something that a lot of young women in particular struggle with. And we see that um, at schools in general, but our goal schools is part of our narrative of how to be risk takers, how to practice failure and get good at it, um, how to then bounce back and whether it's on the sports field or in a computer science uh, or engineering lab. Um, and this was that moment for me. And it was really a, a moment where I had to say, okay, um, I am getting literally airsick. I used to you know, it sounds, I used to hide from my superiors, from my commanding officer, the fact that I would get headaches and air sickness and just would struggle through certain flights because there was such significant air combat maneuvers when you're pulling G-forces and evading, evading, you know, frankly, invading the enemy that you're in training missions and things like that. I'm fortunate to later, there's uh, actually a story that I haven't, wasn't part of the book. It'll be part of, I guess, my next book or these, these podcast moments. But, um, 
I was able to return to the carrier that I served on um, many, a few years later, um, after I'd come back from the Middle East doing research on Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. And my air wing, a couple of years later, was redeployed in, in the Persian Gulf. Um, and they flew me out, the, the, the admiral um, in charge of the air wing flew me out to brief uh, the senior leaders on what was happening on the ground. I had just returned from Yemen and Afghanistan. And I came back and literally revisited this old, not just the old community, was, but the old aviators I flew with, the pilot that I flew missions with, the um, folks I served with. And it was a, a good moment to realize that you know, when one door closes, another opens, and I was still able to serve this community that I'd really been so committed to, but just in a different way. And I spent a couple of days with them out in the Persian Gulf, briefing everyone on what was going on in the ground so that they could conduct their missions from the air with the, that perspective in mind of what was happening in Afghanistan at the time. Um, but yeah, it was a, a funny thing to land back on the carrier and see my pilot and my fellow aviators again and just, you know, go back to call signs and all the rest as you were enjoying right. the, yeah. That's amazing. So as you think back to this experience, which was, it was very painful for you at the time for obvious reasons, but as you reflect on it now and you think about it from the standpoint of helping other girls think about bouncing back from failure or setback, talk from a practical standpoint about kind of what the toolkit was that you dug into? What was it that helped you pivot through that? Because, you know, I think it's fair to say you could really have a major setback and it'd be incredibly difficult to make that pivot. So how did you? So I think there's a couple key, you know, muscles that we want to start building in ourselves and in our girls so that when these moments happen, because they're inevitable at all points in life, this idea that not just um, resilience in moments of difficulty, but adapting to change. Change is everywhere, particularly right now. And we need to really help our kids practice this and help our girls in particular practice so that um, they can do a few things. One is to develop um, a really flexible mindset, a flexible thinking mindset, um, so that they realize that these moments of change and adaptability can be their strength. And that can look like anything. I mean, I think right now we think of it in particular in regards to how we're um, relating to our girls in school, but even as adults, how we're relating as mothers and women at home, working at home. Sure. But we can practice this in small ways, right? It's thinking about, you know, this is a small example maybe, but when you get your child's assignment to what class she's in for the coming year, I think there's inevitably this moment of, oh, she's not with her best friend. You know, let's, let's ask to change, change sections, change classes. And the thought is, well, or her favorite teacher the one she has had previously and is not as familiar with. Well, there's actually a moment to say, wait a minute, this is a good moment in a very safe, supportive environment um, to say, no, let's, let's have her stretch herself and practice in, you know, engaging different people. We know that she'll be safe it's in school, maybe a summer camp, maybe instead of choosing that after school activity that all her friends are doing, you say, no, let's try something different. Let's do it different with a different group so that you practice this idea of um, navigating differences, navigating tension points. Um, I think we can do it ourselves when we think about what, you know, how we lean into new work projects and really own those little moments as moments to practice this idea of adapting to the bigger pivots in life that come with, you know, changing jobs, changing work, you know, changing, moving, recognizing that a career path isn't for you and you need to adjust. Um, I think the other thing, and this is a, a really interesting one that is borne out in the research, is thinking about how we use lessons of failure, not just lessons of success, to, uh, to reinforce what it takes to bounce back and adapt. Um, 
we always think that it has to be a positive lesson moment, or at least I do, right? You have to be like, oh, don't worry. When I did X, it turned out Y. When I went to that overnight camp for the first time, or when I, you know, it was my first time running for, you know, student leader, um, I got it. So you just, you know, lean into it, do it too, because it helps, it, make, it makes us feel better, frankly, I'm sure. And it sounds good as an anecdote, right? Research actually shows that lessons of failure stick more um, when you're when you're teaching adaptability, they've done these um, studies with first responders and military officers and um, and uh, others who have to deal with crisis moments. And it's actually the lessons that say, you know, the first time I did it, it didn't work, and this is why. Those are the ones you say, oh, and then you either adjust what you're doing, or you think, well, maybe it's okay if it doesn't work out for me, but I'm still going to try it. Mm-hmm. I think that's something that, particularly for our young women, to hear from their moms, their aunts, their teachers, the adults in their lives about these moments that didn't work out quite so well, are really important to help them take more risk and get better at better at bouncing back because they'll both learn from our lessons and realize that these moments aren't, aren't failure with a big F. They're just little, you know, blips along the way. So. Sure. Absolutely. So, you know, there's so much in this book that they're both lessons for young women but they're also lessons for parents. And, you know, there's a lot of discussion about this notion of what's called helicoptering, right? Where you maybe hover a little much over your children, which is an easy pattern to fall into. You know, you don't want to see them hurt. You don't want to see them disappointed. Talk about why this notion of helicoptering maybe is doing more harm than good and kind of what you see from parents who are perhaps struggling with this. Yeah. And it's true for girls and boys too, I should say. Yeah, it's true across both genders. It is definitely, um, you know, we want to protect our, our kids. We want to um, see them grow and protect them from those moments where we can, where we think um, that's the, the the right option to take. It's an interesting quandary because over time, it unfortunately reinforces the ideas that they can't do it themselves, right? And But also more than that, even just not this notional idea of what what should be theirs to own, Um, It doesn't let them practice, right? This idea that we all have to practice, practice, practice um, these little ways of being that they'll need when they're adults, right? A great example is how we get our girls in particular to practice using their voice, speaking up, advocating for themselves. It's super easy for a parent to step in in a moment and be like, oh, well, I'll talk with the school. I'll talk with your coach. Um, I'll talk with, you know, whoever offered the first job and explain why the time won't work or the salary is not right. Or maybe, you know, she didn't get the best opportunity on a test because insert here some reason, which could be a perfectly valid one. It's not that. Um, But these are such perfect moments when um, girls in particular, when children are young, to help them practice the act of self-advocating. Uh, you know, you can start when a child is, is, you know, in elementary school and have her order for not just herself, but the whole family when you're at a restaurant, right? Or be her, have her be the one who goes and speaks up at an amusement park or a hotel or wherever you're out and about to ask for directions, to give feedback, to, you know, give comments. And, you know, in the process of doing that, you're not just reinforcing with your daughter that you value her voice and that you think, She's capable of doing it, you know, even from a young age, but you're helping her practice and getting over a little bit of the insecurity or the fear, awkwardness, maybe it's introversion. This isn't about making her an extrovert, but nonetheless, introverts need to be able to use their voices too in work environments and other places so that later when she's an adult and it's that moment to talk with a teacher or speak up to a boss. You know, for me, it was that moment when I was at a table in the West Wing with the president of the United States, right? In this weird moment when all of a sudden I realized I had lost my voice. 
right? Cat got my tongue, such a cliche. Here I was, a career, you know, defining moment, and I was not speaking up as much as I should have or, or wish I'd had. Um, but I do think it's practice, 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 and reinforcing the value that we as adults place on young girls' voices so that they get that chance from early on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, such incredibly good advice. I'd love for you to talk a bit about this. You include in the book, there's an entire chapter on adaptability, which I thought was so interesting because there's some new research that you talk about the value of that. And you referenced COVID a moment ago and how we're all having to be really dig deep and find ways to adapt and pivot. Maybe talk about what you found in the context of researching this book and what your own personal experience has been. Maybe share some of that as well, because I thought it was fascinating. And I, and I think too, like the, 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 the tie for so many of the conversations that we have on this podcast about career and personal evolution. Mm -hmm. And as I read the chapter, it immediately like sent bells off in my head thinking, God, why don't we do more talking about this notion of being agile much earlier? It makes these career pivots much more, much easier. Anyway, but I, I don't want to step on your, your points, but I was just so moved by the chapter. I thought it was fantastic. Well, thank you. And you're exactly right. I mean, we can look at both our careers and think about all these moves along the way that fundamentally altered um, our personal and professional lives. And, you know, it's good. And, you know, whether by uh, training or luck that we were able to lean into a natural adaptability, because it's not something that we really train in, in ourselves unless right. we think about it. And that's just a really recent phenomenon, thinking about it in that way. Um, and that's what the research shows. There's actually a new idea. We, we always, I'll take a step back. We always think about IQ, intellectual quotient. And recently in the past decade or so, there's been a whole conversation about emotional quotient, EQ, right. this idea of how you communicate with others, relate to others, build teams and things like that. But this new research of you know, one's adaptability quotient, one's ability to respond, not just in moments of difficulty, not just being resilient, but actually to respond to change. That is so fundamental to what we're all doing now more than ever in, in the world of COVID and working from home, parenting from home, homeschooling, all that. Um, but just the reality of life in the 21st century. Technology is changing at such a rapid rate and also the way the workforce is evolving. This idea that the gig economy or you know, part-time work, flexible work hours, remote working um, changes fundamentally how we have to think about our lives and jobs. Uh, and then add on it the fact that the next generation will change jobs, some say as much as 10 times, as many as 10 times before the age of 40, right? And that's a generational shift in how people need to think about their mindset and how they adapt again to the world around them. These are all the clear reasons why talking about it more than talking about what it takes to be a good adapter, being adaptable in your mindset and emotionally is so important. And so there's a couple of ways to think about it. One is again, this adaptable muscle, this practicing how we respond each and every day to you know, what our behavior looks like when we have to adapt. And those are some of the things we talked about just a moment ago. And I, I, Laura, I would love to hear from you as well, like how you practice that in your career, because I think we probably both have learned experiences. Uh, but it's also an interesting uh, to think about how we have to emotionally adapt, right? And what it takes to become someone whose emotions, even if you, you know, get teary or if you emotionally respond, you know, get angry, get frustrated, that's okay, but you have to be able to manage it, um, both at home and at work 
to be a you know effective adapter. Um, and it's you know you look at also what people are hiring for. And there's you know after interviewing executive search firms and headhunters and and those that are literally recruiting for senior leaders across all industries. And this is a skill they're looking for actively. Right. They're measuring people's ability to emotionally and in you know behaviorally adapt because the world needs it at all levels. So yeah. You know, we're at such an interesting moment in time and this sort of microcosm, you're sitting in the catbird seat, if you will, from the standpoint of looking at how children, in your case, the girls that are attending your school, are adapting to this very interesting world. If you sort of looking at the last, you know, six months or so, what do you think this generation, like what is the impact that you think that all of this sort of forced adaptation, if you will, both parents and, and kids, uh, and in your case, the girls at your school, what do you think this forced adaptation is going to look like as we look back on this generation potentially? Yeah, I mean, I think this is what I hope will ultimately be um, a silver lining, if we can call it that, to what we're all going through, right? It's a difficult period. It will continue to be difficult for the number of months, right? I think we all should, can, you know, should face that, admit it, because then adjust our expectations. Uh, but I do think our kids in particular are learning a skill set that will be their advantage um, if we nurture it in a certain way moving forward. And what do I mean by that? I think about our girls this spring. Right, and how they adapted, how they leaned into this incredibly difficult, frankly scary for many, because things were changing so rapidly. And, and I know that there was stress on the home front as well, and that sort of gets stress for our children too. Um, and when I look at how our girls leaned into it in certain ways, um, I think it really will be something that later on, whether it's college or the real world, they'll be able to lean into that muscle memory again. What do I mean by that? Thinking about one way that we behaviorally and emotionally adapt effectively is you know, counting on others, right? It sounds, again, cliche, but this realization that you need to ask for what you need and we need to help our girls practice that. And then you need to build a team around you to help you adapt, to help you pivot, to help you find the resources you need in the moments of change of struggle of difficulty or just you know newness um, and to see how you know we consciously at the school built in moments of that whether it was through drop-ins with the nurses or this you know or their coaches or the you know the school athletic trainer or times when they would do you know drive-bys on each other's birthday and share from the window socially distance or postcards we sent them that they would then send back to girls in their class um, these little moments that they began practicing how you lean on each other and how you ask for support from one another in concrete ways help reinforce behavioral norms that when they're older and they have to, in my instance, right, change careers entirely. Figure out, you know, in a moment in the middle of the Pacific when my skipper said, maybe you're, you shouldn't be, you know, flying if you're getting air sick every time you fly and, and when we're in combat that's not the best place to be in what else can you do and he handed me a satellite phone and said just think about it and i picked up the phone and called right phone a friend right phone a family member and you know i remember actually at that moment calling my father and saying i need a i have a i'm at a decision point right how do i what does it look like to adapt and that just started a, a, a year-long process of calling on other people, my team, my cabinet of advisors, I'm sure you have one too, Laura, right? Um, where you say, well, what does it look like? How do I navigate this change? We don't do it alone, we can't. And that in particular for women is something that I think we wanna build in their bag of resources, their toolkit, as it were. 
Um, and so that's just one example of this idea of adapting. We go back to the other, this, you know, the idea of learning lessons of failure too, right? A another something that we saw our girls um, and our teachers lean into this spring. Those moments when we we're all trying new technology and it didn't go so well. I will fully admit and my <laughs> students and parents will laugh when they think, hopefully laugh, right? My first major Zoom, the first all school assembly I did that first day back after spring break was a horror, right? Nothing went right and we were scrambling, new links, not enough people in the Zoom, how did it work? And, you know, as, as a leader, it was a moment where I probably wasn't my best self, but I was, we bounced back and figured it out. And a couple, you know, two hours later, I actually got the all school assembly off the ground. Um, but it was a moment to realize, yeah, no, lesson learned, right? Practice your yeah. technology beforehand, everyone, like, or it's okay to try things new and not have it work out. Um, again, these just moments where we help our kids today practice and build muscle memory for the behavioral and emotional skills they'll need in any any point in life but in particular what the 21st century is going to look like right yeah, it's change yeah. it's adapting it's going to be so much of that for the next generation yeah and and sharing with them which i think is what, what you're getting at sharing with kids too that the, this didn't go so well here's how i felt here's you know here's what we're going to do going forward so that they see you having that set setback or failure. I hate the word failure because I just think it's such a, because <laughs> you, know, like, you learn from it. I mean, that's kind of the whole point, right? Is that you're learning from it. But anyway, you illustrate to them these setbacks. Here's how I felt. It was really crappy, but here's what I'm going to do going forward. So mm -hmm. it's a great, uh, great lesson. Yeah. And again, and you're right. I mean, we, you should always challenge the, the notion of failure because of course these moments aren't failure in any way. And yet, um, they they feel that way. So, so, I mean, it felt that way to me and it feels that way to our girls and acknowledging that moment and then saying, all right, but it's not and let's rationally recognize that and then move forward. Um, I think it's also important to feed in, particularly for young women, these lessons that are at, on the home front too. Mm -hmm. um, and so for me, it's those moments when I, you know, my... Uh, the uh, the new the baby that joined the family I had my first uh, last fall and congratulations part, thank you but part of the story is well how do we navigate that right how do we both balance that and the challenges it presents and then sharing with young women that it's hard right and we need each other and then we need to adapt and refigure out where our um, you know I won't say the word balance because I don't think it is a balance but we, you know how we navigate these moments uh, and I think that's equally important to the story of adapting and particularly the story that we women as adults and, and young women who are growing up, you think about now in this new reality we're navigating for the next few months. Yeah. One of the other topics I want to dig into that you've touched on a couple of times is this notion of feedback, of having mentors or people around you who can give you feedback, but then also knowing who to listen to. You know, when I read your story and when your mentor, I wasn't sure where the story was going as I was reading it, right? So I was reading it and the mentor said, you know, you don't have to do this. And I thought, oh, you know, it kind of took my breath away because I thought, wow, how is she going to respond to this? Um, you know, how do you know? How, how do you know who to listen to? You know, what's your, what's your toolkit for determining you know, who really has your best interests at heart or sort of how to get that feedback, knowing what's right for you. Because look, objectively, everybody has their, has a vested interest, right? <laughs> has their own perspective and there's nothing wrong with that. That's great, right? But how do you know? How do you know who to listen to? Oh, that's a fantastic question. Um, and I think that's a hard one. And I will say that there's definitely been moments where I've 
listen to the wrong people, I would say, or sort of went the wrong direction. And yet, um, I think it's, uh, I think this is where, you know, trust your gut, right? I think there's a moment where we actually have to say what feels right. Um, and this, the, the reality that is so hard to believe, particularly when you're young, but when in hindsight, it usually works out, right? And so these moments when you think, ah, you know, like, is this really where the direction I should be going? And later you look back and, you know, for me, exactly, it was the, the decision to um, stop flying for the Navy. It was a conscious decision to, to start doing something else with the military, which then, you know, unfolded and, and sent me a very different direction. And um, I have the good fortune of being able to now say in hindsight, even though for a number of years, it, it felt like something, a, a challenge I was still trying to prove was okay. Um, and now being able to serve in a whole new way and give back to a whole new community and having both done that in the government and now at a school. Um, but it was this moment where you're right to call out, oh, is that the best advice? Um, I think the other thing to consider um, in that is, you know, it's, it's this idea that, um, well, it's this idea of the difference between sponsorship and mentorship. And I, I, this is something in particular I often um, coach uh, professional women on or sort of when I'm at the audience is a little older or but my, my upper school girls too, my seniors um, at Baldwin, we, we talk about this idea that, you know, a mentor is someone who gives advice and, and perhaps um, will provide you info, but a sponsor, and that's something that women don't do as well, find sponsors, this idea that a sponsor is someone who puts themselves out for you, who seeks you out and finds opportunities for you, who brings you into the fold in moments when you might not otherwise be, which is a little bit of a different role than a mentor plays. Mm -hmm. um, I think more and more we have to think when we're evaluating advice, is it coming from someone who's been a mentor is it, or is it coming from someone who has sponsored you? And that's a subtle difference, but so important, particularly for women who by and large do not as effectively um, nurture sponsors and particularly in the corporate or business world, um, seek out sponsors who will help propel their careers. And I have the good fortune of along the way having a few sponsors um, because of the nature of my work in the Navy and at the White House and counterterrorism fields and, and national security, uh, largely men, um, but those who looked out for me, right, who pulled me into projects, who, you know, some of the ones I ran out and grabbed, but some of the ones were those who said, you know, let this will be good for Marissa. Marissa can do this. This will be, you know, and, and in particular, the my skipper at the time was that, you know, person who sought out opportunities for me. So, um, so I, you know, it was some, a voice I trusted, but it's hard yeah. to know. I don't it know. I, yeah. Laura, that's an interesting one. I'm, I'm curious if you have other, you know, sort of personal lessons about the finding of the voice, but maybe we can talk about that after this. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I, I was thinking too, um, about, you know, as you develop mentors and sponsors, people that are part of your tribe that you develop in different roles, but that, you know, as you grow in your career and in your case, because you've had some really interesting career pivots and a very diversified background, if you had to develop a different tribe once you got to academia. And I, you know, I found this and I think it was somewhat surprising to me that sometimes you need different people around you, that the same people who have provided you advice, they still, they still give really good advice, but sometimes you need different perspective and you may have to branch out beyond your sort of existing network. So maybe talk a little bit about how you've evolved your tribe, if you will, for yeah. different, uh, different roles that you've had because your career has been so diverse. This is again, this idea of it's, it's a skill, right? I think we, um, 
taking a step back, we think often about these like big ideas that we need to nurture in ourselves. We need to be confident. We need to be resilient. We need to be bold, right? And that's overall what we want for ourselves and our girls, I would argue, right? Um, and yet so much of it comes down to tactical skills, things you need to be able to do on a daily basis, like to your point, um, networking, right? Building a tribe, building um, a kitchen cabinet, right? Like the, the, the joking way we say it, but this cabinet of people you can turn to um, in moments, personal and professional. And I think there's very conscious and discreet ways you can do so. Um, one of the less, one of the uh, things we practice at my school with my girls in leadership seminars, we actually do a practice uh, coffee meeting together, right? This, and I spend a whole day of the seminar and we go through old emails that I've sent to senior leaders and old emails that I've received from people who are trying to seek information from me. And we critique them, we say, okay, you know, a couple years ago, some, you know, youngster wrote me this. How did, what do you think it went? How did it go? What do you think worked? What do you think didn't? Here's an email that I sent to someone who's senior at the Pentagon when I was trying to find my next job, right? What worked, what didn't? And through the lens of a 16 or 17 year old, you're like, wow, this is, this is what you do. You actually like, you know, cold email somebody or find a connection or nurture a contact. Um, and I think it's a skill that we can teach our kids and our girls in particular, this idea of nurturing their voice that they're self-advocates that they go out, they need to go out and find somebody. And this is where you go back to who will potentially be a mentor and over time, maybe turn into a sponsor. Mm -hmm. We actually then do this uh, exercise where we have them act out a coffee meeting. We have them come with me to the, the faux Starbucks, which is the front of the classroom and, you know, do a session where we talk about this idea of how do you nurture your tribe, right? And what kind of information, how do you then do the follow-up? Um, and for me, you know, that's sort of the, the starting point, of course, then, and, and I know that you've probably practiced this over time, it's growing that circle of people, keeping in touch with them, making sure that it is not just asking for advice, but offering um, input, offering support and help along the way. And that finding moments to check in with people who then know people, everyone, you know, I have to say, when I started this job, so many folks reached out to me and said, I think there's someone you should talk with. You know, administrators at higher ed, administrators at other schools, people in the education sector who have a different perspective. And I think one of the strengths that um, women in particular can bring to, when they change careers and they pivot is this idea of using lots of different perspectives because of how we communicate and because of, frankly, um, being open to the different lenses that different sorts of that diverse perspectives bring. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I fundamentally count, you know, connect with my uh, senior, you know, senior leaders who I work with or um, collaborate with in the Pentagon or overseas and the government um, because they have a great perspective of how you lead, frankly, in a moment of crisis. Right. So when I when we entered the pandemic, one of my first calls was actually to uh, a a friend, a girlfriend of mine who's a senior um, leader in the U.S. Army, right? And we talked through, well, how, emergency preparedness for, you know, not just the military, but for school. And we, we talked through, well, what am I going to do to, you know, manage the crisis here? The same lessons about how you prepare a team in that environment. Um, I, I jokingly tell my team that they have responded to this better than, my, you know, a squadron would on the front lines of the, of the Navy, but um, they're doing it. Uh, so I... I I guess it's both this idea that we can always find new people in our tribe, but that sometimes actually relying on the, the, those who may seem outside of the tribe is as effective to, you know, pushing our thinking and sort of the two together work. Yeah, that's beautiful. Let's talk a little bit um, quickly about impact and the impact that you hope to have both in this role and with this new book. 
Uh, so I think, you know, impact can be so personal in, in many ways when we think about the impact we want to have on, um, on communities around us. Uh, and so, you know, for me, it's in particular the impact on a community that gave me a lot, right? I went to Baldwin and we, as we said in the beginning, it sort of set me off on my path. Um, I have the good fortune now of also seeing in the long term how the thinking and the, the skills that we're teaching at Baldwin and that I talk about in this book have you know, not just a trickle down, but a ripple out effect, I'll say, um, and this hope that, you know, if we can start talking to our young girls different, start having them practice certain skills, they will be able to thrive, lean into their natural strengths um, and make them competitive advantages no matter where they head next. But also that these are lessons that we as women can take on too. Um, and I'm, you know, it's just the, the sorts of advice that I wish I'd had more of when I was in my 20s and then I wanna make sure today's professional women and today's future leaders, um, young, you know, young women in my school but beyond get uh, and I think you'd agree, Laura, right? This is the future that we want to give to, you know, the world, right? The community deserves it, so. Absolutely, absolutely. One final question. I ask everybody who comes on for a single piece of advice, a life mm. hack or a mantra. If you could boil it down to one thing, recognizing that there is a ton of awesome advice in your book, what would be that one thing? Yeah, I think it's never forget that the people are the, what matters the most. Right. And if you lean into the people around you, that's where impact happens. That's where, uh, you know, the sort of the positive feedback that we all need to keep going, particularly now, it really happens. And I see that no more so than in my school these days and really thinking about what our teachers are doing, what our faculty, staff, what our girls need um, and, and that that impact lies. So the people make the mission. Beautiful. Marissa, thank you so much. I love it. Thank you for having me, Laura. It was a pleasure to be here and I'm uh, excited to continue the conversation too. That sounds great. That sounds great. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Marissa as much as I did. And I hope you'll check out her terrific new book. Again, it's out today and it's entitled What Girls Need to Know, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. Remember, you can follow She Said, She Said podcast on our Instagram at She Said, She Said podcast. And you can follow me at Laura Cox Kaplan, all one word. And if you're listening to the podcast, I would love it if you could take a little screenshot while you're listening and add it to your stories. Make sure and tag She Said, She Said podcast and Laura Cox Kaplan and we will share that with our viewers as well. I'm so grateful that you've chosen to spend some time with us today. I hope you got a lot of benefit out of this conversation. And if you've enjoyed it, be sure to check out all of our other episodes. I have 113 episodes on the platform and there's such amazing advice and perspective. Women who are sharing their stories, their knowledge, what they've learned, how they've recovered from failure and so much more in an effort to pay it forward to help you, whatever your goals, dreams and aspirations may be. So with that, I'll see you next week. Take care.